So we are now uh, going to welcome a good friend of mine um, up here. We've, I've known him for several years. He, he's, uh, when we go to the Presbytery every year and, and we all get to see each other and there's always so much intense debate and everything that goes on and the, this gentleman that is going to come up and preach has always just been a solid rock. Not only is he lovable, so lovable. He's a solid rock. And, you know, we've recently, with the baptism of the, of the Bakkens, you know, we, I love the, to highlight the unity of, of, of our denomination, of our churches. Uh, there is diversity in, in our opinions, uh, and nothing uh, ex, ex, is a great example of that is, is the collar. I'm going to steal that shirt and collar. <laughs> so he's come all the way from Poland, and I'm not going to take up any more of your time because I'm desperate to hear what he has to say. So, Bogomil? This is why I love to travel, because always I can learn something new about myself and be flattered. Well, thank you very much for inviting me and for making this possible. And uh, But first of all, I would like to thank you for sending your pastor or would-be pastor. I don't know how... What's the pos- pastor now? Okay. Not... Not quiet yet, right? So uh, thank you for letting your pastor come over to Europe, to Ukraine in January for our uh, provisional presbytery meeting. And that was very, not also, not only enjoyable, but I think that he really made a, a lasting impact on the lives of the people. Even though the visit was short and brief, but it's always encouraging, especially for people who live in you know the corners of the world like Ukraine or Belarus to know that there are other people who really do uh, are committed not only to the minister of their own churches but also to the broader body of our confederate churches. Thank you very much. I will say more about this after the church. I think that's the plan, but now it's the time for the sermon. I'm going to preach from the book of Revelation, and I will read from chapter 1, verses 4 through 8. John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on him on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Of course, the book of Revelation is one of the toughest books of the Bible, so I'm I'm not even trying to go through the whole book and explain everything in in the book, but I think that this passage, the opening of the book, is very important for us Christians, not only because we have just celebrated uh, the Good Friday and and the Easter, and we are still in the Easter season, but but generally speaking, I think it's very important for all our lives. and I think especially for us, because in the CRC, we, we believe that in the end, Christ and his kingdom will be established on all the earth, right? And he will reign on earth as he does in heaven. Actually, we do believe that he already does this. But we live in these times that are often called by theologians already, but not yet. Yes, he is the king, but we don't see it yet fully. We still need to wait but also to work for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And in the book of Revelation, John, or, well, John actually repeats what he was told, but John explains to us how this happens. And he begins with a Trinitarian greeting in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is why we believe that Jesus is God, 
and the Spirit is God, and that the Father is God, and yet there is one God. That's it. We don't need to go any further <laughs> to prove this. The Father is the reason why history moves forward, right? And and it moves, it doesn't only move forward, but it moves forward to an assigned end, to its culmination, according to the plan, the eternal plan of God. This is why we are Reformed Christians, right? Because we believe in this, that God is in charge, that he is all-powerful, that he does whatever he wants, that all the hair on our hair, uh, heads are counted, right? That not even a sparrow will fall down from the sky without him not only knowing, but also willing this. He is the one coming to us from the end of history, and I think this is also very important that, you know, the end of history is already set. It's fixed, not only by the plan of God, the Father, but also by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In Christ's resurrection, we could see our destiny, right? We could see at least a glimpse of the end of all the history. We know that the end is already there. We are moving towards the end as God the Father is coming to us from the end of history. Yet God is not bound by history, but he is present in, in, the hist- in the history. And then John speaks about the spirit who is love. And because the spirit is love, it means that the spirit actually perpetuates history, that the spirit energizes history. Because, you know, love is the ultimate reason and purpose, but also means by which we do anything that we do. At the beginning of the service, we have heard a lot about our desires and hungers and lusts, but I think these are all the the other names for love. Now, we do things because we love. Without love, we wouldn't not only be able, but willing to do anything. And, you know, anyone here who once at least fell in love knows what I'm talking about, right? I I can recall it. I I did maybe not silly and stupid things, but really things that I probably wouldn't do anymore. Not because I'm not no longer in love with my wife, but uh, I I was kind of young back then. But I I was ready to get up in the morning, take an all-night train just to see my future wife, for a couple of hours, right? And then get back on the train and go to work next day. The son is the firstborn from among the dead. He is the ruler and the king. He is the ruler of the kings on the earth. He already is. He won't be, but he is. Because he died and he was resurrected and ascended to heaven. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are not merely passive observers of what's happening on earth in our lives, but they are active participants of the history of creation. Uh, I hope you do remember that Jesus still is a man, right? After he was resurrected, after he ascended to heaven, he didn't cease to be man, right? So as man, true God and true man, it's not only Jesus, but the whole Trinity participates immediately in the history of the world, but also in the history of our churches and every single one of us. They are not just observers. They don't just cheer us like fans in a stadium. No, they participate, and yet... They are not limited by history. They are not bound by history. Ultimately, it's a mystery, right? We cannot resolve it, but it has to be so because the Bible tells us, but because without this, well, the history would be ultimately, I think, meaningless, and there would be no ground for any hope for us. John then focuses his attention on Jesus, and and his words, and what he did. It's not in the passage, but he calls him the lamb that was slain, right? Killed for us. But the, the lamb that was slain is, is also 
the Lion of Judah, right? The living king of all the living. But John, maybe it's not so obvious as we read the passage, but I think that John uh, echoes Psalm 89 in this brief introduction to the book of Revelation. In Psalm 89, it speaks about David and his dynasty and the promises that God gave to David and to his descendants. But the problem of Psalm 89 is that the dynasty of David is falling and failing. We know it from the Bible. It, it didn't last long before the kingdom was divided, before bad kings sat on the throne in Jerusalem. So that's, that's a question of Psalm 89 about the faithfulness of God. He gave David these promises, but the dynasty is falling and shaking and failing. It's not what it was to be. Yes, the throne of David is presented like the sun, and uh, his dynasty, the kings that who will come after him, are presented like the moon. So these are the two witnesses that God put on the sky, on the firmament, right? So that whenever we look at them, we know that, yeah, God is faithful and he is all-powerful. But, well, we have two witnesses, but the dynasty is falling and failing and shaking, and it looks like... You know, it can only get worse. John says in the book of Revelation that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises given to David. God is faithful. And the witnesses that he gave us are faithful witnesses. We should never doubt his word. I mean, we read, we know Psalms, we know that even people like David, they had the moments of doubt, but in the end, this doubt never over, overcame them, right? There was always some hope. At least, you know, like when, when Jesus was talking with his apostles and, and men after many people left him and he turns to them and, and asks them, so do you also want to leave me? And then I think it was Peter. It, usually it was Peter, right? <laughs> he says, well, but where should we go? Right? So in a moment of doubt, as long as we can answer, you know, the, the question of Jesus, do you want to leave me too? As long as we can say, but where should I go? There is still hope for us. Yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God gave to David. Yet Jesus, unlike David, was not only the firstborn, the first who established the everlasting dynasty of the kings of God. But he also the first fruit of the resurrection. And this is important. This is crucial, not only for the book of Revelation, but for the Christian faith in general. He's the first one who overcame death itself. He is. This, way, this means that he is the one who actually inaugurated, started new, the new creation. And the new creation is important for us because the new creation is the new, the creation that that is not the uh, were, no in the new creation death no longer rules right death no longer is the end but death can become can be a, a new beginning right I think that this is one of the ways how we should look at the cross and the resurrection of Jesus you know before Jesus and for most of us. Uh, death is something that actually we live to die, right? <laughs> That's what even philosopher, philosophers say. We live to die. We live in the shadow of death. Death makes our lives and, and our, all our works and tolls and, and love, uh, for some people at least, me meaningless, right? Because we die and we go and that's it. So we live to die. But then, because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you know, that's now it's all the other way around. We die so that we can live. Death can be a new beginning. At last, it is true that we can put a seed in soil so that it can die, 
so that it can bring much fruit. So the shadow of death, it still, you know, surrounds us. We, we still need to go through the valley of the shadow of death, but we can know now, and we do know, and we should know now, that death is not the end because of Christ's death and resurrection. He defeated death through his own death. Psalm 89 is a lamentation for the falling and failing dynasty of David. The Psalm, eight, Psalm 89 asks this question, what happened with the promises of God? And it doesn't give any answers. It just asks the questions. But the answer is provided in the book of Revelation. Resurrection of Jesus is the, is the answer and the fulfillment of the promises given to David. Resurrected Jesus is therefore a true witness to the faithfulness of God. I know. How many years was it between God gave the promises to David and Jesus coming? It was roughly 1,000 years. Uh, it's not easy to wait for so long, right, for a promise to be fulfilled. That, that's why people asked God, okay, you, you promised us this and that, but where's the fulfillment? How long will we have to wait? Yet, God answered their prayers, and he sent Jesus, his son, who became man, and he died for us, and he defeated death, and was raised from the dead. And that, this is why he is the ultimate witness to the faithfulness of God the Father. But Jesus also himself is a faithful witness because he testified about God the Father to the very end, even to, the, to his death on the cross. His death is the witness of his own faithfulness, but his resurrection is the witness of the Father's faithfulness because he didn't let his dear son to rotten in grave. That's another promise that we find in Psalm, Psalm 16, which ultimately was fulfilled by Jesus' resurrection. And Peter refers to the Psalm in, in the book of Acts, right, when he preaches at, on, the, on the day of Pentecost. Jesus not only died as a faithful witness, so he was faithful to his mission, to his calling, to the very end. This is why he went all the way up to the cross. He also is a faithful witness about the faithfulness of God the Father because he was raised from death. His resurrection tells us that God, God the Father is not only all-powerful, but he is also a faithful God, and he is also a good God, right? We, we need all these three elements to actually have any hope for the future. Well, it, God is not only all-powerful. He's not only all in control, but he's, he's also faithful to his promises. And the promises that he gives us are good promises. He means it. He means it for our good and for our benefit. The Father... No, uh, but then John... Even though he starts speaking with Jesus, about Jesus, he starts with Jesus, and he has a lot to say about Jesus, about his mission, about his death, resurrection, and his reign. But John, very quickly in the book of Revelation, starts actually talking not only about Jesus, the faithful witness, but he also talks about those who follow Jesus, who, on their own, give good testimony about Jesus, who have become good witnesses to Jesus and his faithfulness. These are the ones who, because they follow him, they share not only in his death, not only in his humiliation, but also they participate in his resurrected life. And so ultimately, they will participate, well, will from the perspective of the beginning of the book of Revelation, will participate in also in Christ's reign in heaven and on earth. Well, from our perspective, it has already uh, 
happened, right? It has already distorted, but as we we'll go through the book of Re Revelation, it still has to come. The son, in his faithful service to the father, ministers to his people. John, in verses 5 and 6, says, To him who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 89 speaks about David as a mighty king, mighty warrior. And David was indeed a mighty warrior and a mighty king. He was so mighty a warrior and a king that his son Solomon basically didn't have to fight any war, right? Because David defeated them all. He overcame all, all his enemies. But it is interesting that the, when the Revelation, the book of Revelation speaks about Jesus as a mighty warrior, as a mighty king, he not only overcomes his enemies, he not only defeats his enemies, but he actually turns his enemies into his friends. Well, at least at the end of the book, this is what happens, right? Chapter 21, chapter 22, this is what they speak about. They, they speak about kings of all the nations coming to New Jerusalem and bringing all the glory of the kingdoms and the nations and give this glory to Jesus, the King of Kings. They bring all the glory of the kingdoms to honor Jesus as the ultimate king. So Jesus fights the nations, but not only to defeat them, not only to overcome them, but ultimately to become, to reconcile them with God the Father, so that all the nations will become his friends, will become worshipers of the true God. At least, this is, I think, what we should conclude from the last two chapters of the book. This means that Jesus resurrected and Jesus who ascended to heaven to the right hand of the Father is starting a new kingdom, or actually a new empire. A kingdom that is, that is built on freedom that, we, that he gives to his people because he died for our sins. And this kingdom is built on the worship of true God. This kingdom is also built on the faithful and true witness of the followers of Jesus Christ. And this part probably is the most interesting for us because this, this, are, this is our life, right? We are called, as long as we are here on earth, not only to worship God, but also to give through witness about Jesus the King. Yet the followers of Jesus can become witnesses of Jesus, of the faithfulness of God, only because Jesus loved them first and redeemed them but by the blood, but the power of his blood. So the spring, the very beginning of the new creation, of the kingdom of Jesus, of God, uh, is his perfect sacrifice without it. None of this would be possible. It's possible only because of his own death. He didn't sacrifice someone else, as we usually do, right? But he laid down his own life for the life of the world. We could spend a lot of time talking about why this is important, but just, just briefly. Actually, we do it, right? Every Sunday as we gather for worship, we are reminded about the sin, and how, how disastrous, how damaging it is, first of all, to ourselves, and then to everybody else that's around us. We need to remember that sin has great power over our lives. And I would like to repeat what Pastor Mike just said at the beginning of the worship, right? I think that was a very good, even though complete summary of, of what sin does in our lives. Sin makes us slaves and servants to our desires and lusts, so that our bellies become our gods, right? This is what, how Paul, Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians. Sin makes us slaves to our past. You know, 
how often do we have to live in the shade or shadow of things that happened in past? Stupid, silly things that we have done in, in past, right? Or wicked and evil things that other people did to us, right? As long as we cannot reconcile with people who might have been our friends but became for because of sin, either ours or theirs or, you know, mutual sin, our enemies, you know, we need to be reconciled with them so that we can move forward. Uh, it's true in the life of individuals, families, churches, but also in in the lives of, of whole nations. You know, I often go to Ukraine because, you know, partly because this is my job, partly because... Uh, I kind of like these people, especially people from our churches, but even among us, friends, co-workers, co-ministers, there are some disputes, you know, historical disputes. Oh, your people have done that, you know, like 100 or 200 years ago. Ukrainians will go even though as far as like a thousand years ago, you know. well, when we talk, me and them, about this, it's more kind of like kidding, joking. But uh, for other people, this is very serious business, right? I'm not sure how it's in, in America, but, you know, Eastern Europe, it's all like this, you know, and probably Serbia is the worst of all. Anyway, you know, if we cannot go get pa- past our sins, past sins, if we cannot liberate ourselves from our histories, you know, it will enslave us. It will shape our present lives. Uh, it won't, it will, won't make a true, real progress, development, maturation possible. Societies which, which so a society which doesn't have means to get liberated from its past sins and problems has to live with the consequences of its sins forever. And this is not good. This is not good. Actually, you know, we could say that the whole world, until the coming of Christ, had to live un- under this condition. We, we know that God provided some way of dealing, covering of these sins, but... Before Jesus came, that wasn't possible, you know, to, to fully, completely uh, redeem their past sins. This, this is why the first few thousands of his, the history of the world, you know, yeah, there was some progress. But when Jesus came and, and uh, reconciled us with God the Father and freed us, liberated us from our sins, only then, you know, true progress was possible. There is another side of, you know, a life in the bondage or in the bondage of sin. Uh, if we are not reconciled, if you are not redeemed from our past sins, we always have, you know, the guilt in in the back of our heads. And this means that guilty people are easily manipulated, right? I, I think that this is something that's really happening more and more often in, in the present day, you know. Uh, we talk a lot about victims and, and uh, victimizers, and th- this is how all whole societies can be manipulated by the guilt that they have. The only unity that a society like this, that has not been liberated from their past sins, the only unity that that a society or a group of people or a family can can achieve is the unity unity imposed on it by force. And this is also something that the Bible tells us about, speaks about from the very beginning. We read about Cain and and the city or the cities that he built and Lamech, the seventh after uh, Adam from the line of Cain. You know, yes, city, yes. There was some progress. They, there were some engineers and musicians there. They were the first artists. But the, the only unity that, that they enjoyed was unity enforced by people like Lamech, who boasted that, you know, he would kill anybody who would kick him, 
right? That that was his approach. I, I will take a seventy-sevenfold revenge. That was his motto. Roger Scruton. If you haven't read anything by Roger Scruton, I would encourage you to try. He's, he's an English uh, conservative philosopher. Uh, he writes about many different uh, topics, but in one of his books, he's, he says, in the Christian tradition, the primary acts of sacrifice are confession and forgiveness. Those who confess sacrifice their pride. You know, it is always a very humiliating experience to confess your own sin, right? It's, it's a very uplifting experience to confess other people's sins, right? Uh, then we feel really like almost angels. Uh, but it's a very humiliating experience to confess your own sins. That this is why we don't want to do this well. And this, we don't also want to do this because we don't completely try the other, trust the other side that they will actually accept our confession and forgive us, right? This, this is why this, this has to be to work on both sides. But, you know, humility is something that, that we all need, right? Humility, I think it's, it's basically synonymous to the fear of the Lord. It is the beginning of all wisdom because only, uh, only if we are able to confess our sins, if we are humble people, uh, only then we are ready to speak the truth, not only, not only about other people to other people, but to speak the truth about ourselves to ourselves, right? And only then we are actually freed, liberated from the lie that li we live in. Only then we can actually enjoy the truth that can set us free. Yes, it does. It can. The problem is that we are not often or usually not humble enough to accept the truth about ourselves because, you know, if we don't start with ourselves, then all the other truth that we have to tell or have to say to other people is basically worthless and meaningless. It becomes a tool of destruction rather than a tool of liberation. And this is why it is so important. And I'm really glad that, you know, I think that all, in all our churches, this is what we do. We start the worship of God with the confession of our sins. This is very, even from the, you know, mental, therapeutical point of view, it's, it's something that we all need. Even if we don't want to go to heaven, this is something that we, it's good for us, you know, confess our sins. But then Scruton says sacrifice on the other hand, no, on the other hand, those who forgive need to sacrifice their resentment. And this is also something that's, that's not easy to do, right? We, we love our resentments. We, we, we love to talk about the bad things that other people did to us, right? Oh, you see this, this guy, you know? Do you know what he did to me like 20 years ago? In a way, it's very uplifting, right? But in a very wrong way. So confession and forgiveness are the habits that made our civilization possible. This is what Scruton writes. That's, that's very interesting that, you know, he's not a theologian. He's a, some sort of a Christian. He's more like a philosopher. But he says, well, all our Christian civilization, and we still kind of enjoy it, uh, though we don't know for how long, right, it comes from this idea from confession and forgiveness. This is what makes uh, what we call a civic society possible, right? Those of you who have traveled to, to different parts of the world where they have not been blessed with 2,000 years of Christianity know that, you know, it can be very much different in other parts of the world. I will speak more about this in my presentation after, after this service, but, yeah, we are blessed. But all the blessings, even, you know, from on the societal level, come actually ultimately from, you know, this exchange, confession and forgiveness. And this is, I think, what, what John says, speaks about in the book of Revelation. You know, it all started on the cross when Jesus shed his blood for our sins. 
John, writing about all of this, refers, of course, to Exodus, right, from Egypt. Well, Exodus is all over the Bible, right? So, no wonder. But how did it happen? God liberated the Hebrews from the, through the blood of the innocent lamb, right? And then he led them to Sinai to make them into a royal priesthood. So this is the sequence, sequence, election, Passover, and Sinai. Election, that's, that's when God says, I will liberate you. I will set you free. And then Passover is the means of liberation, right? Somebody has to die. And then they come to Sinai, and God uh, cuts the covenant with them and gives them all the promises and blessings. This is the sequence. This, this is the pattern. And it happened not only during, during Exodus, but we can see it all over the Bible and also in the book of Revelation. Uh, and this is, I think, what John wants us to remember, and it's very important, because we often, as evangelical Christians, uh, focus on you know the forgiveness of sins and, and uh, our personal reconciliation with Jesus, but you know it's just the beginning. It's like the Jews leaving the leaving Egypt, right? It it's not the whole story. <laughs> it, it will. It has to continue. So. Election, Passover, Sinai, this, this is something that John wants us to understand and remember, remember because that's the not only usual, but God works in our lives using this sequence always and ever. This is the way. The path they are set on is the path which takes them to the kingdom. No. Okay. Sorry. I think it's in Colossians 1, 13, when Paul says that we were delivered from the kingdom of darkness, right? And now we have been transferred into the of kingdom of Christ. But again, how did it happen? Cross. During the days of Exodus, it was Passover, an innocent, perfect lamb had to die. And also the firstborn uh, sons of Egypt. In our case, it, it was also, well, also, it was the perfect lamb that had to die. And the firstborn of the people of God who became like Egypt is the same pattern. So Passover, which is a type of cross, uh, is inescapable. If you want to be transformed or translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But there is another thing. I don't want to make it too complicated, but perhaps it's recorded, so you will listen to it again and figure it out. Maybe, maybe you're taking notes. But there is the other thing. It wasn't just Jesus who did this. I mean, who are we after all? We as confessing Christians, we as baptized Christians, we have been baptized into his body, right? We are his body. We are his bride. We are the bone of his bone, and we are the flesh of his flesh, right? These are the words that, 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 that Adam said after God created Eve from his rib, right? But this is also something that Jesus says about his own body, which is the church, which is his bride. But... If we are his body, if we are one with him, it means that we as the body have to go all the way following Jesus, who is our head. What does it mean? Well, often we say, well, perhaps not we, but perhaps even we, we say that Jesus died so that we don't have to die, right? But that's not the Christian gospel. Uh, the Christian gospel says that Jesus died so that we can die in him and with him. Because only if we die with him and in him, we can also be resurrected in him. Right? That's the only way. And I think that this is what John wants to tell us in the book of Revelation. We have to die with Christ in Christ. Not only in some metaphorical sense, 
but in, in a very actual sense, in a very real sense. And this is what Paul also says about in Romans 6, right? This, this is what baptism not only means, but, but does. It unites us with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Uh, what does it mean, practically speaking? Well, it means that, yes, we need to die to be resurrected. It means that there will be troubles. It means that we need to take up our crosses and, and carry them, and this is the only way we can follow Jesus. We as the body of Christ, but also we as individual Christians. You know, it, this can be, these can be different kinds of crosses, but still, we need to carry it. We need to die. We need to die to our sins, right? We need to die to our sinful lusts, but sometimes it means we need to die, literally speaking. And this is actually what we should want to do. We should want to die with Christ, in Christ, because then we can become like him, you know, a seed that's thrown in the ground, which dies, but it dies not, it doesn't rotten and stay there forever and nothing happens then, it dies so that it can, it can bring any fruit, good fruit, maybe abundant fruit. And this is what John says. And then he speaks later in the book of Revelation about martyrs. And who were martyrs? You know that the Greek word martyros, uh, which the English, but also the Polish word martyr is derived from, originally means witness. Martyrs are the people who gave true and uh, faithful witness about Jesus and his gospel and his kingdom. And this is why they were the ones who were killed because for the sake of the gospel. And these are the ones that, even in the Old Testament, God said about people like this that uh, the death of the saints is precious in the eyes of the Lord. Which psalm is this? A little test for you. 116. I think. Yeah, I would have yeah, to check. Yeah. <laughs> so what about the martyrs? Yes, we, Stephen was the first one, right? We know his story. And then it was Jacob and then, or James in the English Bibles. <laughs> and then there were much more martyrs who were killed because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is, according to John and the book of Revelation, the ultimate witness to the faithfulness of God. But also it's the ultimate testimony about our commitment to Jesus. And we want to be committed to Jesus till the very end because we want to die with him because we want to be also resurrected with him. It's not only about, you know, living forever. Many people actually don't want to live forever, uh, but it's more about, you know, uh, making our lives and whatever we do meaningful and fruitful, right? I, th I think there's something that, that everybody actually is looking for, for his life to be meaningful in, and fruitful. And John says, well, if you want your life to be meaningful and fruitful, this is what you want. You want to follow Jesus even to the cross, because you want to die in him and with him, because this is the only way to make your life fruitful, but also to make your death fruitful, to make any sacrifice that you make in your life fruitful. I started with, you know, talking about uh, the spirit, the spirit of God who, who is love, who perpetuates everything, all our actions. Uh, and this is something that I think John wants us to understand that lie, there is no love without sacrifice, right? Some people believe that, yeah, there can be love that requires no sacrifice. Some people believe that if they can find a perfect spouse or husband, right, uh, wife or husband, this means that they will never have to make any sacrifice anymore, Right? But that's a complete misunderstanding because the, 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 the life of love is the life of sacrifice. It's the sacrificial life. So, yes, the spirit is love. 
But the Spirit is one of the Trinity, and one of the Trinity came and became human, and he died. He died as human, he died in flesh, and yet the ancient creeds say that, says, say that one of the Trinity suffered in flesh. Yes, he suffered in flesh, he died as a human being, and yet it was one of the Trinity. So it's the Trinity who, who sets the pattern, who sets the example. We, we can see, you know, that the election Passover Sinai or death and resurrection pattern, we can find it within the Trinity itself. I know it's getting more and more complicated, but just think about this, right? Who died on the cross and why and what it means for us. In verse 7, I think it summarizes all that, that, that John has to say in the introduction, but I think it also is like the, the main theme of the whole book. John says, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So, amen, amen. This is something that, that John, by the two amens, he emphasizes it. You know, he underlines it, highlights it for us. We need to get it. This is important. What is important? Jesus came, and he was rejected and betrayed and tortured and humiliated, ashamed, and killed. He is the one who was pierced, John says. But what happened then? Then even those who pierced him acknowledged that he was the true son of God. Well, this is where it gets tricky again, because you know the book of Revelation is a very tricky book, right? We know it. But, Actually, as we read the gospel accounts, we see that it was only one man, right? The centurion who, looking at Jesus and everything that happened during these six hours, he said, oh yeah, this was, this is the Son of God, the true Son of God, the only one. We don't know if that was the one who pierced Jesus literally, but he, one of his people did, right? But it was just one pagan one Roman soldier. Here in Revelation, some 40 years later, John says, no, everybody who pierced him will recognize whom they pierced. But then, who, who is John talking about? Is he talking just about Jesus? Or is he about, talking about what theologians, smart theologians, called totus Christus, which means the whole of Christ. But who or what is the whole of Christ? This is Christ as the head, but also we as his body. So when John is speaking about, you know, Jesus uh, having been pierced and the people who pierced him ultimately, finally acknowledging that, yes, he is the true Son of God. I think that John means that as in the first century, but also actually in, also in our days, you know, we, we all still remember what happened in Sri Lanka, right? Two, three hundred people killed. Why? Because they were Christians. Well, maybe not quite the, the same kind of Christians as we are, right? We have our own differences, but for the Islamic terrorists, this, all our little petty differences really don't matter much. Uh, it happens. You know, I'm not sure how reliable these reports are, but, but, you know, some Christian sources actually say that, that the beginning of the 21st century is one of the worst for the Christians, right? That for a very long time, so many Christians have not been killed as at the beginning of the 21st century, precisely only because they are Christians. So John is speaking to people like this. He says, well, when they pierce you, like they pierced Jesus Christ on the cross, they think that they destroy you. They think that they defeat you when they kill you, 
but actually they don't. Because this is God's providential means uh, by, when he, by which he builds his kingdom, by which he convinces your persecutors about their guilt and sin and how he brings them into his kingdom. This is what happened with the centurion, right? Who was there on Golgotha. And this is what, what, according to John and Jesus, happens every time when Christians are martyred because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But I think this is also something that happens every time when we as Christians endure any kind of suffering in a Christian way. This is a very powerful testimony. When other people can look at us Christians, you know, suffering, some big loss, maybe somebody that, that we have loved for a long time, you know, as they look at us, how we grieve, for example. This is a very powerful testimony for non-Christians because they cannot do it the way we can do it. But we can do it because Jesus had done it first for us. The Son, in his faithful service to the Father, ministers to his people, but he also ministers to his people, to all of us, as we suffer, as we grow, go through all kinds of deaths, as we die for him. And he ministers in two ways, because he makes even our deaths and suffering fruitful. But then, through our deaths and sufferings, for his kingdom, for the sake of Jesus and his gospels, he actually brings all the nations into his kingdom. Because this is the pattern. The ones who pierced Jesus, the ones who are piercing his own body, will be the ones who will eventually confess that Jesus is the true Son of God. Amen. <laughs>